I'm John Tickle. Welcome back to Sendrika's Power to the People podcast. In this episode, I will be exploring the way cutting-edge technology is enabling us to improve our carbon footprint and make our homes truly connected to our energy providers and to the grid. Let me tell you something astonishing. A quarter of all our CO2 emissions come from our homes. That's quite a statistic. We really do need to think carefully about how to reduce those emissions. The way forward seems to be what Centrica calls connected car, connected home, connected customer. I want to find out what that really means. If you heard our first podcast, Power to the People on the Road, you'll know that I went on a voyage of discovery in an electric vehicle. I wanted to find out how far we've come down the road of electric cars and where that route was taking us. At the end of that journey, I was both excited about the future of EVs and determined to get one myself. Just as soon as the contract on my current car expires, I will be jumping into a new EV. But as you can hear right now, I'm doing something to my bicycle. I'm converting its front wheel. It's going to be electric. So basically, I'm sold on going electric. I live in London. I care about air quality. I care about how much it costs to fill up my car. And as you can hear, I have embraced an electric bicycle. But it's not enough. I want to find out more about connecting my home and how much more of a connected customer I need to be. The answer seems to lie in a smart new future, where our electric vehicle, our mobility, is connected in a very holistic way to our home energy. And all this, crucially, will be enabled by the open flow of data and information, which interests me greatly as a data architect in Centrica. OK, so my bike is ready to go now. I'm off. On this bike, wherever I can. There may be a steep learning curve ahead of me, but with my electric bike, I hope to manage those hills with ease and get a new perspective on the future. I have to admit it, my bike might not get me all the way to my first stop, which is the rural Oxfordshire home of Cendrica's sustainable transport editor, racing driver Amanda Stretton. But it will take me to the station. Carl Bayliss, Cendrica's Vice President for Mobility and Home Energy Management, who featured in our first podcast, is also going to join us there. Hello, are you Amanda? I am, you must be John. Yes, I am. Come on in. Thank you. As soon as I walked in, Carl asked me the pertinent question. Hi John, it's good to see you again. In the last podcast we heard about your exploration into electric vehicles. Have you made your decision yet? Oh absolutely Carl, yes. I'm absolutely sold on the idea of an electric vehicle. I have a little slight problem in that I've got another 18 months left on my current car lease, but I have just ordered an e-bike conversion for my push bike. So I'm going electric on my bicycle and hopefully that will stop me using my petrol engine car quite so much. That's an amazing step forward already. I think uh, as we start to realise how many miles we actually do and now, you know, in the, in the midst of the pandemic, our behaviours have slightly changed. So we don't have so many miles to travel on a day-to-day -day basis and we can fill the gaps with other multimodal transportations like e-bikes or even walking these days. Uh, it's become a pleasure more than a chore. So I think, you know, 
you're not alone in having that that change of heart and um, placing those orders. And now it's really a call for the manufacturers to start to really ramp up the production lines, I think, uh, to really meet the demand going forward. Amanda, we know that you're a racing driver, broadcast and journalist. What's your position vis-a-vis electric vehicles? What, what do you drive at the moment? People expect me to have a deep love of the internal combustion engine, which I do. And my current car at the moment is, unfortunately, still an internal combustion engine because I'm also, like you, waiting for my lease to finish so that I can get myself an EV. Um, I'm really excited about the EVs coming to market, I have to say. And I think it's going to revolutionise the way people view the market because of the choice that's going to be there. What are the features of a car that form your choice? Well, again, uh, because of my background in racing, people think I am only interested in sporty racing cars. The reality is, of course, that you can't speed on the roads. So you do, in fact, need a car that will get you from A to B comfortably, warmly, um, with good sat-nav, good infotainment, good connectivity. I've got two grown-up children. I have a dog. I therefore need a car that has got sufficient load capacity to move all of us around as and when we need it, but increasingly not all of the time. Now, the tagline for this podcast is connected car, connected home, connected customer. And I'd like to explore with you what connected car means to you. Connected car means so much and the opportunities that arise from it are so great We could potentially be looking at a car that connects with our calendar. So it will work out where we go on a particular day. It'll actually start looking at some of our routines and our patterns and our car will start charging accordingly. And when we say charging accordingly, that doesn't mean like we do currently with a petrol station. You go, you charge, you fill your car up. Your car can actually decide as and when it's going to take charge. So it can optimise when energy is cheaper and you can opt for green tariffs as well. But then as we start looking further down the line, this is, I think, where it gets really exciting. Your car can actually arrange your speed to make sure that you're not sitting at the traffic lights. You're not caught up in a traffic jam. It will know that when you get to your destination, a specific charge point will actually be available and ready for you. Carl, I'd like to turn to you. So we've we've talked about connected cars. Will Will the connected home talk to the connected car? Will the car know that I've got to make a trip to the supermarket? So I believe that the connected home will start to have an interplay with our daily schedules. So making sure that whether it's a, a static battery that's at home is fully charged to be deployed when perhaps the electricity is the most expensive on the grid so that you're offsetting the cost, for example. Or it's timing the opportunity to charge those batteries or the, the high energy consuming units in the home that might be a, perhaps a heat pump, for example is when the grid is at its greenest. So the sustainability message is in there, or a blend of the two. And I think we've always had in the back of our mind we should turn the lights off when we leave the room. But making sure that we use the right amount of hot water at the right time and we can use that where the grid is at its most renewable or its greenest and where the cost is as, as cheap as it possibly could be, that awareness of how much energy we're consuming, which is around about a quarter of the total CO2 pollution that in the air today is coming from heating at home is a really big challenge. Um, I think as we start to become smarter with that, we'll reduce that carbon footprint, along with the new housing stock that's expected to come on, which will have new standards of EPC rating, will have new technology and be ultimately a net zero home of the future. 
I'd like to pick up on something you just said there, Carl, because um, buying a new home, which is going to be massively thermally insulated and have ground source heat pumps and solar panels and batteries and all that thing, that sounds wonderful to me. Except that I live in an 1895 Victorian terraced house in the middle of London. Amanda, are you facing those kinds of quandaries in your mind as well? How, how do you actually uh, take some steps forward into this new energy future? You're absolutely right. There is nothing I would like more than to actually make my home more energy efficient. Um, as such, when I built the room, the conservatory in there, all the glass is actually as thermally efficient as I could possibly make it to the point where actually I do have underfloor heating, but I don't necessarily need to use it even in the winter on a sunny day. And as I start upgrading my home, I have got plans in my garage to put a static battery on my roof in the garage, I'm planning to put solar panels so that when I do get my EV, I'm able to actually start utilising a smart charging system. Amanda's plans are inspiring me to think about my own house and also the potential for brand new homes right now. As I leave, Carl gives me a valuable lead. So I think it's a really good opportunity to go and speak to uh, an organisation called Synergy who are looking at the communities of the future around the net zero challenges that we have when we build new homes. There's plenty that need to be built in the UK to meet the demand uh, as well as globally and there's uh, some revolutionary methods of construction and some philosophies in there which are really important and interesting for you to hear. I certainly will, that sounds like a fantastic lead. I'll go talk to them, and if it's all right with you, I'll come back and check in with you later on in the podcast, and we'll talk about what I've learned. Have a great trip, and speak to you later, John. What you see here are homes around a green, and in essence, actually, those homes have different typologies. So they can range from studios to one bedroom, two bedroom, three and or four, depending... Now I'm with the founder of Synergy, poring over some plans for their community housing. And then as part of the overall offering, we also include... Um, mobility, so that is electric cars, bikes and scooters. Their plans clearly reveal Synergy's focus on community living, as there's an evident combination of centralised sustainable energy, flexible parking, mobility services and community amenities, such as co-working. I'm Shane Hussein. I'm the CEO and founder of Synergy. Synergy principally provides uh, about 110 homes for 150 people. Those 110 homes are shaped around a courtyard. The homes that we provide actually are a rental model. And then as part of the overall offering, we also include mobility. So that is electric cars, bikes and scooters. Our demographic is what we term as the conscious millennial. So in essence, actually, part of the rationale for targeting that particular segment is that the average age now for people buying a home is, sounds horrendous, but it's 38. So to us, actually, what we're trying to do is to actually offer a highly efficient, all-electric home. The Americans kind of call it living as a service because, in essence, actually, you, need, you can turn up without anything. So we provide the whole thing. And we also have what we term actually as a library of things. So the library of things, if you want to hire a drill or you want to actually get a shovel or a spade or whatever, we can actually provide that through our, uh, our community app. I think I understand. I mean, I'm a data architect, not a building architect, but I know that my designs can influence the way that people use uh, IT applications. I think what you're telling me is that the design of the architecture of the home can influence how people live their lives. Is, is that what you're getting at? 
Absolutely. Um, but I think that at the core to us, it's about people. The essence of all of this is about personal space and actually a feel of belonging. Can you tell us a, a little bit about how these buildings are constructed? The, the buildings themselves are actually constructed within a factory and, and we use wood as the, as the core fabric. We're, we're trying to put across an exemplar of how homes ought to be built, not necessarily all from wood or necessarily all from within a factory. Obviously, that is a really efficient way of doing it. What we're saying is, though, is that our technology is providing an ideal benchmark and technology set that other developers can take and put into their method of building for individual homes, whether they're for rental or for sale. Clearly, you've got a lot of technology in your architecture. How does that change the nature of the relationship between a connected customer and a connected home? To us, in all honesty, technology is there as a passive assistance. To me, you know, I, I don't want yet another app for all the different elements that actually exist within my home. I just want it to be there, to tell me what I need to know. You know, what are my CO2 levels? And am I being good? That's all I really want to know, to actually provide me with some of the things I need. And actually, that may also include some of the relationships I need to build within the community. I imagine that this is quite a, a timely conversation with the COVID pandemic and more people are, are working at home. Is this kind of architecture facilitating new modes of operation and new behaviours in, in the homeowner? In all honesty, uh, Richard Scott, who's, who's our architect, had done that already because actually we could see that whole area actually around living and working were actually kind of getting closer and closer. Since COVID what has happened is that people love the concept. It's meeting all of the, the important standards that are coming out with regards to the future home standard for all electric homes. And in essence, to be an all electric home, you have to be highly efficient. If you're efficient with your home in terms of just the fabric that you're building it to, it means you use less energy. It means, therefore, that you can do lots of other things with that energy. Uh, you can obviously use that energy to charge cars. And the cars also form a part of the rental model, as indeed do the bikes and the scooters and, and things like that. Thanks, Shane. It's been a fascinating chat. I've learned a lot. And I think I'm going to have to reflect on some of those lessons that you've taught me about what the vision of the future for connected homes and connected customers might be. Uh, thank you, John. My pleasure. As I cycle home effortlessly on my fabulous e-bike, I fantasise about living in such a community. But I have to face facts. I have no plans to move out of my Victorian house right now, so let me focus on a more present future, a new electric vehicle. I'm going to do a bit of internet surfing when I get home. I want to explore what will be on offer, both as a new EV owner and as a connected customer. I'm also remembering Amanda Stretton's comments about how we will be able to connect our calendars to our electric vehicles. This intrigues me. I want to find out more. What we do is say, charging station, pharmacy, supermarket, please make my day. I found a demonstration online of a bright new idea, an app called Make My Day, which has been developed by an Israeli startup. All the driver has to do is enter their data and, hey presto, 
it works it all out for you. Telling us it will take us 54 minutes to charge our car. How much time will it take us to drive there? Where we continue later on. So this app uses a sophisticated algorithm and deep learning to help me with my daily driving life and also to find a charging station for my EV. Cool. Let me learn more. I'm going to connect up with one of the app's founders, Kanan Aviv. It was Kanan who I just heard demonstrating the app online. He has been developing the app along with co-founder Nissan Katz, but it was Kanan himself who was inspired to develop it. I find myself all the time driving from one place to another. I'm a person that always needs to run errands. And as a developer myself, I said, let's try to solve this problem. I'm driving over there and then I'm driving back here. Let's try to have better plan of day. Most of us are today are very busy and always have to drive somewhere. And especially when you have an electric vehicle, you have this anxiety, range anxiety. Where can I charge my vehicle? And we call it like a point of no return. It comes from the army. So you won't find yourself driving outside the range and you will not be able to get back to a charging station. And so I started to create this uh, solution and I started to see traction. So I'm giving you my calendar data. You're giving me better charging algorithms and, and, and decisions about how to manage that. And you're taking all of that stress out of my life. Exactly. Exactly. We learn your behavior as a driver. We learn your behavior as a, as a person that needs to do many other things and many stops during the day. And then we can understand where are the meetings and the location of the meetings. And then we can offer the charging to be next to the meeting. And we can also look on the way to the location, to the destination that you need to go. And we can understand if it's a, like in a 3D map, if you're going uphill, it will probably will consume more battery than if you're going downhill. And then we can see both your own behavior and we can compare it to other drivers and see if it's actually optimized. And we also learn the vehicle behavior and the battery inside the vehicle behavior. We can issue warning when there is a problem of state of health of the battery. For example, when the battery charges too fast, it actually shows on a problem inside the battery. And it's something that we are learning. We create something that is called like a digital twin of the battery uh, in the cloud. And then we can understand that suddenly the battery does not behave as expected. And we can issue a warning. You need to go to garage. You need to check uh, the battery. That's very encouraging. I, I'm a data architect by trade, so I think I can understand your solution and, it, and its architecture, and I don't have any problems thinking about data security and, and data privacy. Am I normal in, in, in terms of thinking like that, or do you find that a lot of people are worried about uh, data privacy? I think... Everyone have it like in mind, but there are some people that have no problem sharing and I say, if they give me a better result, I trust. So I trust this company. So they share. And some other people are more closed and prefer not to share. I would say that today we say it like I would say 80, 20, 20% are more afraid regarding their privacy and prefer not to share. 80% usually uh, share this data, like they share with Google Maps and they share it with Waze. They share it also with Make My Day. Something that we need to rem remember that usually Make My Day does not come as a standalone application. It is an API and an algorithm or an extended added value that is connected to other existing application, like the one coming from Centrica or from other companies that already have a solution for the drivers, they add Make My Day into their 
existing solution. So this is why if you buy a, a car for Mercedes, for example, a Daimler, you feel much easier sharing the data with the OEM that you just per se the, the vehicle from. Oh, right. OEM being original equipment manufacturer. Exactly. And actually, the OEM is responsible for your data and transfer the data or use it inside Make My Day in the highest security uh, available inside their on-premise data. So you don't actually share it with all the drivers of Make My Day. And people feel much easier sharing this data when they have a company that they trust from, from the beginning. It sounds great. It sounds like I only have to give it actually quite a small amount of data and it does a huge amount of work and then gives me a lot of value back. That sounds very attractive to me as a, as a, as a value proposition. I could get involved with that. Thank you very much. We really hope to be able to spread it around the world. Well, I've had a morning on Zoom, which, as we all know, has been a feature of the pandemic, and it does get tiring. So now I'm stretching my legs outside, enjoying the open air and the birdsong and the traffic noise and the ring road and reflecting on my conversation with Kanan Aviv, and in particular about the use of our data. As I just told Kanan, I'm personally only too happy to share my data to receive the benefits offered by something like Make My Day. But Kanan made the valuable point that it's a matter of how much we trust the companies to whom we give our data. That's very true. As a data architect, I'm keen to find out how we can encourage customers to feel happy about sharing their data. I've been listening to two consumers who are kind enough to openly share their opinions about the new smart technologies that are coming our way. They talk about their attitude to renewable energy and also their opinions about the use of their data. I think it's fascinating to hear what they agree on and also where they diverge. My name's Rebecca, and I live in a Edwardian terraced house, turn of the century. And at the moment, I have a combi boiler for gas and uh, electricity. In fact, I don't know who my energy supplier is at the moment because my last one has just gone broke and I'm just being moved on to another one. Hi, I'm Klaus. I, I live in Oxford and uh, I have a gas supply by, by actually by, all by EDF. And uh, I also got a British gas cover, which supplied me with a hive. I regretted a little bit not having solar panels. Lots of friends I'm talking to and friends living in, in Europe, one in Norway, and the sort of heat pumps is a kind of standard there. They're, they're quite advanced. And so that uh, to basically get that uh, energy more or less for the cost of installing the equipment is quite exciting. Well, I'm really in favour of renewables, and I wish it was easier to get renewable energy. Um, and if there are opportunities to do things which feel like they're going to be helping renewables, then, then, then I do. Um, but I have to say, I don't know very much about smart technology um, for energy, and I'm a little bit wary of it. Uh, sort of coming from a software background, I know what, what is possible, what you can do with these devices, yeah, to, to manage that even, even more efficient. So I'm the kind of person who um, doesn't use sat-nav unless I absolutely have to because I don't like the feeling of loss of agency. You know, I want to be the person choosing the route that I'm going to be driving. I don't want a machine to tell me what route to drive. I don't like the feeling of passivity. And I think it would be the same thing with my house. I want to decide when I want lights on and off and energy on and off. I mean, it'd be nice if I could do it on my way home from work, I agree. But I don't want to hand all of that over to an algorithm or to a machine or to a company. 
there's a step to be taken to to get used to it, to to to, to be in control of what's being spent, what's active. I would feel uneasy completely leaving it to some device and then dealing with the consequences. I, I'm sort of, that's probably just as I am. I just like to be in control. It's probably down to the fact that I don't have it yet and I can't really see. So if I have a application that shows me what's going on, then uh, that might sort of ease my concern. Certainly one issue is I think there is a gap between what we can do with the technology and what will be done with the data that, that drives it. Um, and I don't want to sound like a Luddite. I'm aware I sound like a Luddite. <laughs> um, one of those people who'd be saying, no, trains, we don't want these terrible trains. But the fact is, you can see the downside of this with social media and algorithms which drive advertising that's linked to social media use um, and how the consumer becomes the product. And I would be very uncomfortable at the moment until we got a lot more sophisticated with how that side of it is managed to make sure that we're not going to be just handing over all this data with no idea how it's going to be used well i think we're doing this already with our phones yeah everything is tracked it's all a matter of trust do you trust that uh, corporation that is using that data without that data it won't be possible uh, to provide these services yeah it's as simple as that uh, we've been actually doing this for decades with banks yeah they all got our data don't exactly what we're buying how much money we're spending and we trust them and we can tr if you can trust the corporations then i don't have an issue with that I, th I think you know, technology is advancing so fast and I think it's probably a good idea to be sceptical and wary until we know more. Oh, I'm working in the IT industry, in telecoms, IT, cloud technologies, and uh, security is one key aspect. I can talk about it because it's part of my job, but a neighbor who, I don't know, uh, doesn't really know about protocols or, or, or small devices or it's, it's all sort of magic and uh, you can get really scared. But if you have sort of trust that this data sits there and is actually in an entity which is protected and no people who want to control you access it maliciously, uh, then I think there is actually an advantage. Yeah. I would be happy to move in simple stages like where my car becomes the battery that also powers things in my house. And what I can see is that I want to feel comfortable and uh, in charge of what is being done with information that I give. Now, I can see this as a little bit contradictory because even as I'm speaking, I'm thinking about the number of times I just press yes to accept cookies and don't think about what that means because it's a nuisance because it's just getting in the way of what, something I want to happen now. But in a way, the fact that I already do that justifies the fact that I'm wary about where this technology might lead. I think this will be kind of a waterfall. So when you get it at the beginning, you want to be sort of assure yourself that this is actually working. And then you look at it less and less because it will be working. That's how it will work in my case. Thanks so much to Rebecca and Klaus for their invaluable insights. If you heard our last podcast, you may remember Dr. Charlotte Duke, the wonderful behavioural economist who helped me analyse attitudes in our society to the use of electric vehicles. Charlotte leads the behavioural economics team at London Economics, and I felt the need to turn to her again. So here we go, I'm back on Zoom.
Well, it's been a while, but I do believe that's Dr. Charlotte Duke on screen. Are you there, Charlotte? Good to see you, John, on the other side of the screen there. Great to see you again. Bit different from the last time we, we talked. It's all about Zoom nowadays, but it's, it's great to be in touch again. I've got so much to talk to you about. I'm very excited. We've heard a little bit from Rebecca and Klaus, and those were two really interesting interviews and, and two different ends of the spectrum. And I wondered what your thoughts were about how we can influence people to embrace this new connected ecosystem. Yeah, I I thought it was really interesting what Rebecca and Klaus um, spoke about. I almost see it like a seesaw that we as customers are on. And on one side, it's the trust and control. So the caution that we have about using these new technologies which require us to share our data. That's one side of the seesaw. The other side of the seesaw then is the benefits, the opportunities. So it really depends where is this seesaw tilted? Is it tilted towards the caution side or is it tilted towards the opportunity side? And really, I think what Klaus and Rebecca said really embodies our relationship with all new technologies. So let's think about our everyday life. Let's think about the digital banking apps that we use or the uh, online marketplaces where I now can buy anything I want from anywhere in the world sitting on my sofa. <laughs> um, dating apps, hugely popular, growing in great prominence over the last decade. Very private information shared on those dating apps right through the mobility apps. I want to go to a restaurant. I get my mobility app out and hey, presto, the car's at my door within three minutes. So we engage with this new technology all the time and we share our data all the time with these new technologies. Rebecca also mentioned in her chat that she uh, presses the cookie button, you know, press that cookie button at the top because she wants access to the data and the information and the products that are sitting behind that cookie button. It's looking at reasons why we choose to share our data and tipping that seesaw towards understanding the benefits of using that data or sharing the data and making sure that people trust how that data is going to be used. How ready do you think we are in the UK for, for this connected customer, connected home ecosystem? I think we're, we're, we're growing towards being ready for it. And Klaus used the word waterfall. You know, when these technologies become the social norm, when it's just part of our everyday life, it, these are going to take off really quickly. But as people slowly adopt these technologies and the knowledge spreads that I'm benefiting from these technologies, I'm benefiting from them in terms of my house being safer when I'm away because the lights can be controlled while the house is empty. I'm benefiting from it because there's a reduction in cost that I'm, I'm incurring for using my energy. I'm also benefiting from it because I'm, I'm helping the environment. There are environmental benefits to it as well. So I think once it becomes a social norm, it'll, it'll pick up very quickly. It's, it's a little bit of a paradox. It's a paradox as to why when a new technology comes along, we say, oh, I'm really worried about that, really worried about that. But then we slowly, as we engage, we don't even think about it anymore. The way to sort of overcome that paradox is to ensure that the company that is providing the, the, the technology or using the data ha has a good relationship with its customer and is trusted by that customer. 
I think I'm starting to see that this will be quite an iterative process. It won't be a big bang from from zero to a completely connected home in in one go. And and so I think we might iterate through the, the, the evolution of these services and share more and more as we get comfortable. I think so. And that's exactly what Rebecca said. You know, simple steps, step by step. And even Klaus, who um, sort of works in the data intensive area with algorithms, with, with, with machine learning technologies, he said, but I wouldn't want to give everything over to that smart technology. You know, perhaps if I just tried it out, I'd look at it all the time to check what, what's it doing. But once he's gotten used to it, he wouldn't look at it anymore. Can, can you help me understand the, in, in, almost the relative ranking of, of three things, perhaps? Uh, peer pressure from your, your friends, signals from companies, and then signals from central government. How, how should we be thinking about those three factors and their relative importance? Friends and family always come first, John, always, in all, in all our decisions in life. But also it's broader than friends and family. It, it's people who, who are like me. The social norm is probably the most powerful communication tool or trigger that we have. In terms of the providers themselves, I think making it easy to understand how to adopt these technologies and how to use these technologies So as a behavioural economist, we sometimes call these uh, channel factors, very simple information provision, simple steps, one, two, three. The role of government, of course, is also very important. And we see lots of incentives that come from central government to help customers to adopt technologies for environmental benefits. Because let's talk about it. When when we speak about the, the connected home, the connected customer, the connected car, this is all driving towards environmental sustainability and, and, and the big goal of, of, our, of our generation of protecting the environment. As usual, it was so good to talk to Dr. Charlotte Duke. She's spot on. We have to bear in mind, all the time, that the goal of our generation should be to focus on driving towards environmental sustainability. So I've learned what is possible from Synergy and Make My Day. I've discovered that the connected customer will have to feel very confident that their data is in safe hands, and that for some of us, it will be a gradual, iterative process. But I've also learned that once we all see it working and understand how it works, we will most likely move forward at quite a pace. So now I want to understand more about the role of our connected electric vehicles in terms of the future power system, both nationally and locally. I know that the more we embrace being connected customers, the less we'll have to rely on and put pressure on the national grid. And I also know that there is some amazing work and modelling of energy systems going on right now in Professor Goran Strabak's team at Imperial College London. There's one member of his team that's researching a PhD that feels extremely relevant and interesting. Let's let her introduce herself. My name is Alicia Blatiak and I'm doing my PhD in electric vehicles and vehicle-to-grid technology at Imperial College London. How we can utilise electric vehicles on the network for the benefit both of the users of the vehicles, the owners, and the network itself and the power system in, in GB to make sure that the lights stay on. I think many people will have seen news stories along the lines of, well, if we all bought electric cars tomorrow and plugged them in, the, the grid wouldn't be able to cope. Is that, is that the truth? Is, is there reality in that, that, that kind of story? 
the assumption a lot of the time when those articles are written, the assumption is that those electric vehicles will be plugged in at peak because that's how we use our electricity. We come home, we switch the kettle on, we come home, we imagine we come home and we plug our cars in. So a lot of the time, the way that that research is done is by assuming all these people are plugging in when they come home. And in that case, we're looking at, I mean, somewhere in the range of four to six times the peak that we have, depending on uh, how many electric vehicles you assume are, are bought or switched out for, the, for combustion engines. So in that case, uh, yes, but... And this is really where the research comes in that we're doing. That demand needs to be managed. It needs to be spread, and fundamentally needs to be spread at level across the day. There are so many ways you could match that demand with when renewables are on the system, whether it's solar during the day or wind during the night. My work is about using discharging as well as charging. So you could, in theory, charge when the sun is shining, when the wind is blowing. And then when you come home, instead of burdening your network, you could discharge to your home. And that's what we would call behind the meter optimization. So it's it's how you capture and use the energy that you're ultimately using to drive that matters. It's the timing. And I get my pound of flesh out of this, don't I? Um, I'm, I'm quite excited about the prospect of getting an electric vehicle and driving it and, and, and being a good citizen and having a positive impact on the environment. I'm also quite excited about the prospect of driving an enormous battery on wheels and the fact that if I do sell the energy in that car battery back to the grid, I get to make some money out of it. Yes, and that's exactly the kind of future that, that I envisage, where you're, I think you mentioned in your previous podcast, there's this term, you're a prosumer. So you're both a producer and a consumer. So if you drove around during the day and you came home, in the first instance, you'd be able to save money on your own electricity bill. That's what we, we imagine being a kind of first step, because technologically we're closer to it. You could also imagine a future where, you, where you're selling it locally to your road or, or to the system at, at large and selling back, selling back the energy or providing what we would call balancing services, which is helping National Grid, the system operator in GB, to balance supply and demand to keep it at a stable frequency. Uh, we can imagine the electric vehicles actually discharging and charging according to that to help balance out the system. And this is a really helpful bit of technology. In my research group, headed by Professor Goran Strabak uh, at Imperial College, we've recently been looking at the effects of COVID on the power system. One of my colleagues discovered that actually it cost approximately three times as much this summer because of COVID to balance out the system, to pay the bill for this exact balancing that I mentioned of, of supply and demand on the network to keep the frequency stable. And that's, yeah, so that's approximately £200 million extra this summer. And that was largely due to the reduced demand, along with renewables, uh, it was quite a warm, sunny summer. And we could potentially benefit by having the electric vehicles on the, on the system to help manage that and reduce the cost or even spread that, that value across all of the owners so you could end up making, making some, uh, some extra money with your electric vehicle by, by helping in the, in the future power system. So that's really interesting. It sounds like the future is nearer than I had imagined. So we're involved in a project called eFlex, which is a V2G demonstrator project. Vehicle to grid is this ability for electric vehicles to sell energy back to the grid. And we're showing that it can be done at an industrial scale. Already it's coming online. At a consumer level, at a domestic level, that might take a bit longer. And the products that you're able to sell with your energy are evolving. 
It sounds like what you're suggesting is that, yes, I'm going to have a, a giant mobile battery on wheels. And as long as my objectives are met vis-a-vis -vis the energy needs of my home and my travel requirements, then all of the rest of the capacity in that car battery on a particular evening, another agent could take control of that. And whether it's charging or discharging over the course of the night... I really don't care. As long as I'm making money out of that, somebody else can make decisions about how my car battery is used. Yes, and I think if uh, there's enough education and people are, not, are aware enough of the benefits of handing over that kind of energy for the system, not just for your own pocket, I think we will see people being more willing to make a contribution in this way. You've got your smart devices, you're meeting your energy needs, and there are a lot of other benefits that are coming from that, from that situation. I've got about 18 months on my current car lease before I will be able to buy an electric vehicle. But it seems like what you're saying is that in, in those kinds of time frames, we might even get to a point where I'm actually able to sell power back to the grid, make a profit from owning my electric vehicle. That's really exciting. Yeah, I think it is really exciting. And I think that this is the future really where we're making the most of the technology that we have. We're making the most of the energy that we store in batteries and it's a win-win situation. I think this is the way forward, yeah. Thanks so much to Alicia Blatiak. This really is so very exciting. And aren't we lucky to have scientists like Alicia thinking laterally about the way that we can make renewable energy function for us all in the best possible way? Time for a cup of tea and to reflect on what I've learned so far. And now I'm going to mull this over with Centrica's Vice President of Mobility and Home Energy, Carl Bayliss, who I chatted with at the beginning of my journey. Let's get him up on Zoom. Hi, Carl. Are you there? Hi, John. Yes, I'm here. I can hear you loud and clear. How are you? Yeah, I'm fine, thanks, Carl. Um, it's been a really fascinating podcast, actually. We've learned that there are lots of different solutions in the market. There's lots of startups being innovative and bringing new apps and new, new solutions into the market. We've also heard from consumers like Klaus and Rebecca that they have different attitudes to this new tech. Some want to be early adopters. Some aren't quite so sure about how they're going to be utilising some of these solutions. Are we as an energy industry going to be able to react to the different pace of take-up amongst different consumer segments of all of these different possible uh, solutions? That's a really good question, John. I think inside looking out, I can see the, the vast opportunity of the power of collaboration between big organisations like Centrica and the other big industry players working with small startups, Mick Canan from uh, Make My Day, and lots of other ventures that are really starting to make it very easy for customers to adopt the thinking and then bringing it to the big customer bases of the large organizations. I think when we crack that spirit of collaboration towards a common goal, I think we'll start to see a, a massive adoption of, of, of take up in, in the technologies and the innovative products that are in market or coming to market today. Again, there's, there's a lot of opportunity under the surface today 
with um, all of these technologies that will start to, to, to come to the surface and become uh, a regular conversation point in the way that electric vehicles have now started to become very much mainstream. So we'll start talking about heat pumps, we'll start talking about dynamic load balancing in the home, we'll start talking about optimization and, and efficiency savings that, that can be had from a home energy management package, uh, you know, perhaps like a product from from Hive that becomes, you know, it's a it's a renowned brand um, and therefore you have the trust to interplay with it. So I think we're on that crux of crux of change. And I think what's happening externally with the, the climate agreements, the, the, the net zero challenges, there's lots of noise in there that makes it really interesting for, uh, for people to, to get involved with and to play their part in making a difference with confidence. I think you've sold me, Carl. Um, I think very much like the first podcast, we're going to end on a positive note. I think I've been persuaded that this vision of connected car, connected home, connected customer is achievable. And it's achievable for someone like me. Thanks for sharing that with me. That's great, John. And I hope that uh, your experience with your electric bike and in the next 18 months, we see you with an EV. And, you know, we'll have another conversation and we'll see what we've done to the home as well. Look forward to it. I hope you enjoyed this podcast from Centrica, Power to the People, Connected Car, Connected Home, Connected Customer. I very much enjoyed the journey, and I feel that I understand quite a bit more about the energy ecosystem of the future. I hope you do too. Until we connect again, I'm John Tickle. Thanks for listening.